Well, let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew's Gospel chapter 3. It's, uh, it's nice to be breaking ground and getting some headway into this great text about our Lord Christ who is King. Uh, these days are odd as uh, goes without saying, I guess, these days, right? It's uh, a different time, a time where we need hope. Like never than before, we need hope. And Jesus is hope, and he's the king who is our hope. Um, in the midst of that need, yesterday was gorgeous. It's gorgeous outside today as well. These Alaskan kind of pre-fall days are exciting and um, enjoyable. And my kids uh, twisted my arm, and we uh, ended up going to uh, a lake setting uh, kind of down Seward Highway, about an hour south over by Portage Glacier. We were on floats and, and looking out at uh, the glacier, and it was gorgeous, just a great time to relax. And I went into the water and realized that that must be glacier-fed because it's cold. And I'm a swimmer, and I was out pretty quickly, but dried off, and we all were headed back, uh, my wife and three of our kids, and uh, on the Seward Highway, and it was suddenly stopped. And what had happened uh, right before Beluga Point is traffic was stopped going both ways and several rescue vehicles were there. First responders, uh, firemen were there walking around and on radios and trying to figure out, we were all trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, The the scene was such that we were about five cars back from, from the first responders. And so eventually Judy said, why don't you go and find out what's going on? So I said, okay, well, I'll walk up kind of sheepishly, non-threateningly, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, what's happening? There was a KTUU cameraman who was sitting there and he had the camera up, up towards the peak. And I don't know, how did the cameraman get airdropped into that scene? That was amazing. I was kind of like, baffled by that, you know, traffic stops and he just happened to have a camera, but I don't know. And so there we are. And it turned out there were hikers up on the ridge who had lost their way or maybe lost their um, trail and they were in danger. And they were in really mortal danger at that point because one wrong move and they could go off the cliff uh, to their deaths. And uh, there was a boulder that came down and went into the road and thus the traffic was stopped And we waited there for a little while, actually called a few first responder friends of mine just to see if they knew any intel about what was going on exactly. But uh, the radio walkie-talkies were going back and forth. And really what the men were doing is they were trying to figure out either how to get that hiking party down or how to get up to them to get them down. There was a need for rescue, rescue. And these first responders were geared up and wired and trained and focused to rescue people who had lost their way, who were in trouble, in jeopardy. Immediate danger called for an extraordinary rescue. And what I want us to look at this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, is a rescuer who was put right at center stage, right at the beginning of chapter three, and that is none other than John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist. It's trendy today to call him John the Baptizer because people are trying to put some distance between John the Baptist and the Baptist denomination, I guess. But really, it's a noun. I looked at it several times. He was known, titled as John the Baptist, which means that he functionally baptized people. He baptized converts, people who were repenting of their sins. He dunked them. That's what the word bapto or baptize means. It means to dip or to immerse and dunk fully. Immersion. And so Matthew's first responder here is John the Baptist. You can read with me in verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here, stop there. John the Baptist was a baptizer. He was unorthodox. He was a wilderness preacher who leapt on the scene just as a baby in his mother Elizabeth's womb as he leapt with the sound of Mary's voice, Elizabeth's cousin, the mother of the Lord Jesus, when she had conceived by the Holy Spirit, when she came and engaged her cousin, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leapt in the womb. Well, where's he been? Well, he's been off the grid, in the wilderness, by the southern region of the Dead Sea, training in formal education? Not really. He was raised by his dad, Zechariah, who was a priest. He left the priesthood. He exchanged robes for the Nazarite vow, having his hair grow long, putting on Um, ancient Gore-Tex material, which is camel's fur, girded with a leather belt, eating locusts and honey. Locusts, why? Because high in protein, so he has a lot of energy to preach. And then eating honey, which is from the sap of the bark, which was plentiful in that area, so he had the carbohydrates to preach. He was excited. He was energized. And he had a message from the Lord, John the Baptist, This person who was equipped, outfitted, just like the first responders I saw yesterday, John the Baptist was a responder, a rescuer, someone seeing people in need on the scene, preaching the word of God. His bullhorn was the message in a single word, beginning at verse two, for everyone to what? Repent, to repent. This is not the modern pulpit's message. This is, this is an ancient message. It's the preacher's passion to warn, to say something is not right. Something needs to change. Something is wrong. Something is going very wrong. You are on the precipice on a cliff headed towards disaster. Not mortal disaster, but, but not physical disaster, but eternal disaster. You're headed to hell lest you lest you repent. Again, our culture is crying out for hope, and the hope is Jesus Christ. How do you get to Jesus Christ? You repent. You repent. The one way to Jesus is by turning away from your sin to turning to Jesus, the true way, the true truth, and the life Jesus Christ. Well, who is John the Baptist? Let's just look at the messenger. We're going to look at the messenger, then we're going to look at his message, then we're going to look at the masses who came out to hear the message, and then we're going to look at the mark of repentance. So first, the messenger. 
the messenger. Who is John the Baptist? Well, he was the last prophet in the old covenant era. He's the last one. Malachi, that Italian prophet, Malachi, um, the last book of the Bible in your Old Testament, that was a joke, but anyway, failed attempted humor. The last Old Testament prophet, at least in terms of the writings of the Old Testament, he closed the chapter of the Old Testament saying the day of the Lord is coming. And then there was a 400 dark intertestamental years of silence where God did not speak. It's like the, the sun went down and set and it went dark for 400 years. And during that intertestamental period, people were straying into religion. They were straying away from the Lord instead of thinking about the, the anticipation of the Messiah. But as the light dawns and Jesus was born and he had grown up as a distant cousin from John the Baptist, again, Mary and Elizabeth, they knew each other. They were both with child. They both had their babies. John the Baptist goes into the wilderness. Jesus is growing up in Nazareth. And so John, John's gospel chapter one, talking about Jesus and John the Baptist, they didn't really know each other. They weren't conversant. John the Baptist knew about Jesus. He knew his role as forerunner to tell people about Jesus. And he knew that Jesus was at hand and his ministry was at hand. So he is this prophet now speaks. And he's the last prophet. He's the last prophet under the old covenant, making converts. There were converts, as we know in the book of Acts, who were converts under John's ministry, who just heard the gospel message that the kingdom was at, was at hand and they needed to repent. And there were people who came around this message in droves to hear John the Baptist. Well, going back to the last um, prophetic book of the Bible, Malachi, Malachi chapter four, verses one and following speak actually of the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of the Lord. It says, for behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day of the Lord is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, this is the crux of the message here. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his, in its wings. It shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Skip down to verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Notice the grace in verse five. The day of the Lord is coming. Listen, be not deceived. That day has not yet come. It's still coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a warning for you to hear that unless you repent, you will fall prey under the fires of God's wrath on the day of the Lord. You will be burned and then eternally burned. That's coming. John the Baptist showing up right after 400 years of darkness is the grace of the gospel that's foretold here in Malachi chapter four. There's gonna be a forerunner. Elijah's gonna come back, not actual Elijah. The last time we see him is uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration. You have Moses and Elijah that are worshiping the Lord Jesus who is on full display in brilliance and effulgent glory with Peter, James, and John. That's Elijah. John the Baptist comes back in the spirit of Elijah. Not everyone understood this. Not everybody made the connection. 
But for, for sure, that's who John the Baptist is. And it says in verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Turning, turning, that's the word for repent. In Hebrew, shuv, it's to turn, it's to do a 180. You go in one direction and then you go in the other direction. You go in the direction of the Lord. You follow him, heart, mind, soul, full of affection and a complete transformed life. That's a Christian who then is set apart from, protected from, shielded from the wrath of God that is to come. If you were to look one chapter earlier in Malachi chapter three, you see very precise prophecy about this one who would be John the Baptist. It says, behold, I send my messenger I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord, for Yahweh. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Where did Jesus go when he first showed up? Where was his first public ministry after being tempted in the wilderness, after being baptized, after the spirit of God rest upon him? He's anointed to preach. And where does he go? He goes to the temple. He upends the tables. He clears it out. Why? Why does he go there? Because he's calling out false religion. He's calling out where the children of God had trended to in those 400 years of darkness. He's saying, I am the light of the world. I'm it. I'm the Messiah. And I have dawned and I've come. Well, this is very precise prophecy. Hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. Jesus is the Lord. The messenger is the one who prepared the way for the Lord. And the Lord came and he came to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John was the messenger. He was the rescuer. And his rescue came in terms of a message. One way for hope. That's through the message of repentance. How do you get hope? You get Jesus How do you get Jesus? You repent of your sins. If you hang on to your sins, hidden or known, if you hang on to them, you're not going to have the hope of Jesus. You let go, you seek God's forgiveness, you turn, and you follow the Lord Jesus. I love the simplicity of John the Baptist, and I love the simplicity of his message. Let go of your sin and receive hope. Do you need hope this morning? I can hear the amens in my heart. We need hope. We need the Lord. And the message of John the Baptist to call out people's sins is a message of grace, not a message of condemnation. A lot of people say, well, that condemning preacher, that preacher of gloom and doom, that preacher who is telling people that they're in sin, that preacher who's clarifying issues of sexuality and heterosexuality and biblical marriage. Oh, you know, what a, what a bummer of a preacher who's preaching the word of God, well, that's the message of hope. That's the message of joy. Let go of ceremonialism, let go of religiosity, let go of false, um, false mechanisms where you think that you are saved, let go of external giving, let, let go of external singing, and repent in your heart and receive joy, which is the joy of the gospel found in hope. John the Baptist is mentioned in all four Gospels. I looked at all accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's Gospel. They all speak of John the Baptist. 
And yet John the Baptist was known for his humility. He was known for his self-effacement. He was known as someone who would preach Christ must increase and he must decrease. It's the humble ones that often gets often get put at center stage because they're just vessels. They're just ministers. They're just truth givers. They're not looking for the praise of man. In Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse seven, it says, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of those sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There he is basically saying, listen, a slave oftentimes, oftentimes would go and would wash people's feet. Sometimes it would be actually abhorrent duty to wash someone's feet because it was a, a society that was a pedestrian society and also animals so with, that you would ride on for transportation. So there was fecal matter on someone's foot. Well, John is saying, I'm not even worthy to take the role of the slave and untie the strap of the Lord Jesus and wash his feet. He would do it, but he's saying, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and do something on that level because John the Baptist is someone who with full clarity understood who Jesus was. Remember the disciples? They were always following him as Lord. They knew he had the words of eternal life. They, they understood, but they were also growing in their understanding. I think John the Baptist, as a prophet of God, had unction to speak what he genuinely knew, which was that this is Jesus who is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He knew that Jesus was holy God. Because of this, Jesus said of John, truly, Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, the path of greatness is humility. Jesus extolled John, not for John's sake, but to say the Spirit of God had worked in his heart in such a way that he was humble. Ministry is not about us. It's not to build us up. It's not to give us glory. It's not to give us awards. It's not to give us accolades. It's not to build self-esteem. It's not for wealth. It's not for notoriety. Ministry is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ministry that's truly satisfying, that's truly authentically real to us is that which gives to others and gives to God and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was what John's ministry was all about. It's an old covenant prophet. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is Uh, What's quoted here specifically in verse 3 of Matthew 3 says, For this he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was a town crier. Someone who would, was crying out for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this reference of one crying out in the wilderness is what's repeated and quoted in all four Gospels. He was the town crier. 
He was the wilderness preacher. He was unorthodox in his style. He was unorthodox in his manner. He didn't dress the way that he did for shtick or to be hip or to be cool or to be distinct. He just dressed like a prophet would dress. Oh, this is how a prophet dresses. They have to dress in, in, in outdoor attire, in camping equipment attire. He needed to live out in the wilderness He was someone who was living on a little, living on locusts, living on honey, living on enough to do functionally the work that he was called to do. He was coming in the spirit of Elijah, and so he dressed like Elijah. Second Kings speaks of this attire where this is how he would dress. It's what he would look like, camel's hair. Leather belt. That's how he came across. And he was a town crier. He was someone who would set the stage for Jesus' arrival. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is at hand. It means Jesus is here. And in Roman times, anytime a king or a Caesar would be rolling into town, you would have town criers who would be crying in the streets saying, prepare the way to pay homage to Caesar. Back then, that was media. Those were the coming attractions, um, communications. That was commercial break um, moments. This, these were announcements. It would have been awkward for Caesar to show up and for nobody to know that he was coming or that he was arriving or he had arrived. And so it would have been awkward for there not to be a town crier, someone who was able to point out Jesus, who was fully human, to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Luke's gospel further explains this and expresses this through a a broader quote from Isaiah's passage. It says in Luke 3, 5, and 6, quoting Isaiah, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, you see that it says, John knew who he was. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, listen to this. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John was not in an identity crisis. He knew he had been set apart to be the new Elijah. People were confused by that. Remember Jesus dying on the cross when he said, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani? And they were saying, is he saying, is he calling upon the spirit of Elijah? Is he calling for Elijah to return? No, John the Baptist came and fulfilled that prophecy. Always knew who he was. Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 13 and through 17, speak of John's arrival on earth as a newborn. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, that's John's father, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must 
must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Stop there. He was to take the Nazarite vow, which was to abstain from all alcohol, to let his hair grow. He was to be this prophet and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John came in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a Tishbite. Second Kings 1.8 says he wore a garment of hair, a belt of leather about his waist. It's Elijah the Tishbite. John said, I'm going to be that fulfillment of that prophecy. It was designated by the Lord for this to happen. He was rugged. He was radical. And he was a first responder to people's need and needs. How is your need met? It's met by hearing this message. Be warned. You must repent. You must repent. Repentance is what gives you Jesus. And Jesus is what gives you hope. Just let's talk for a minute. Do you need hope? How do you feel in your hearts these days? How do you feel towards your fellow man, your fellow woman on the street? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Do you want to serve others? Do you have a heart to give? Do you have a heart of humility? Do you see a future in front of you that you're smiling towards, that you're excited about, that you're anticipating? What will the future look like for your children? What will the future look like for your grandchildren? What will our government be post-November? Are you filled with hope? Well, perhaps your hope and hopelessness shouldn't be measured in terms of these circumstances. Our hope and hopelessness should be measured in terms of our clarity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lens or our windshield gets fogged real quickly with the sins that we're hiding or holding on to. Repent, let go of them, and embrace and see the Lord Jesus Christ over all circumstances, over sickness, over rules, over regulations, over people's attitudes, over dynamics, over how the bills are going to be paid. All these things should be subsumed under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you cannot see clearly unless you let go of your sins. Repentance is what gives hope, and hope is only found in Jesus. John the Baptist was humble enough to give this message. You need to be humble enough to give this message. Boldness flying in the face of hopelessness comes from humility. John the Baptist was humble enough to preach boldly at all costs. And ultimately, John the Baptist, as you know, and we'll find the story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, he ultimately is beheaded for his boldness. He flies in the face of Herod. He's willing to say to Herod Antipas that he was in sin for marrying Herodias. And Herodias, who was his half-sister, an incestuous marriage, which was wrong. She was married to um, Herod, or not Herod, but the, Herod, Philip I, his brother, so it was his sister-in-law, I should say. It was wrong. It was sin. And John the Baptist was willing to call it out at all costs to be put in prison for that message, to be done in boldness but humility. 
A lot of times people think that humility is a personality. Oh, that person is so meek and mild. That person is very quiet. That person is kind of mousy in their behavior, but oh, what great humility that person exudes. Oh, what great restraint that person has. Oh, how wise that person is as he or she never speaks. But by the contrary, a person who speaks boldly for Christ, you don't need to be belligerent. You don't need to do it rudely. You don't need to do it unwisely. You don't need to do it uncarefully or unskillfully. But boldly, you speak, and that's humility. Humility is being willing to speak for the name of Christ, speaking boldly that he may increase while you decrease. And I'll tell you what, when it's done right, with a groundwork of humility where you're being bold for the faith, that's living, that's living. That's where you are enjoying the Lord Jesus Christ, where you speak for his fame, for his glory in view of your own self-deprecation. Well, that's the messenger. Let's look quickly at the message. What, What did he say? Beginning in verse one again, in those days, that phrase is a loose expression for the Old Testament, Genesis 38, 1, Exodus 2, 11, 23, and Isaiah 38, 1, all say this phrase that Matthew repeats, picking up from the Old Testament. He's speaking of crucial days. He's speaking of the days when Jesus and his family had grown up in Nazareth. But really, this is a historical marker. This is to say, this is a unique moment. There's a unique Savior and a unique baptism that's a call to repentance because the Savior has come. This is a unique time where suddenly things have changed in the culture. We can relate to change, but this change is a change of hope. And out steps John in the wilderness of rural Judea, and he says, repent. This is the crux of the message, metanoia, which means to literally change your mind Change your thinking about what's going on. Think differently about the circumstances. One of the most beautiful realities of the Christian life is we are not bound to the ups and downs and highs and lows and various ways that circumstances suddenly change. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And it it calls us, this message calls us to change our thinking about our circumstances in view of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to stop and turn around and restart. True repentance is different than just thinking. It's thinking differently and then having a transformed life based on what the Spirit of God does in your heart as you think differently. Remember the prodigal son who he took his father's inheritance early, said, I want to cash it out now. In times of famine hit, he parted it all away. He had lost everything. He had gone to the bottom of the barrel. And suddenly, as a kosher Jew was stooping to the level of the farmhand job where he's feeding pigs, wanting to eat um, from the swine pods, and, and he's starving to death, brought to the lowest of the low. And it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, but when he came to himself, came to himself. He had a change of mind, which created a change of heart. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I need to come, go back to my father. And he moved towards his father. And before he could even get there and basically say the words that he wanted to just be a servant to his father, a slave to his father, his father enveloped him in love and grace and mercy through a party in the honor of his repentance. My son was dead, but now he is alive. This is repentance. This is what God does in our hearts. Repentance is not behavior change. It's not a redirection through the force of your own will. It's a change of mind that's generated at first by a change of heart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift to us and he transforms us and renews our minds from the inside out. Otherwise, it's not true repentance. It's a gift. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, Paul tells Timothy to correct his opponents, to to gently move towards your enemies with gentleness. Why? Because it says God may perhaps grant or gift them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Be gentle. Use the word of God. Why? So that we can set the conditions for God to transform someone's heart from the inside out and it's a gift. Anytime you repent, it's a gift. Anytime you're sitting with someone where they're repenting, where, where they're beginning to confess their sins out loud and say more than is being asked of them to be said, where they're confessing their sins. You know, in James 5, let the elders lay hands on the one who is sick, the one who is in need. And in that moment, they're confessing their sins. They're telling their, their, what they are sad over. They're releasing their, their inner sins to the public. When someone is doing that, you are in the midst or the presence of God's Holy Spirit work of repentance in the heart of a person, a believer. Repentance is profound. Repentance is amazing. Repentance is freeing. If you've ever needed to repent to someone because you've sinned against them, you know that gnawing guilt that's inside of you, that you need to make something right, where you leave your gift at the altar and you rush to them. But if you've repented already in your heart, then you're rushing to them with joy, not fear, right? But if you are still holding on to your sins and you still don't think you totally need to get that right, but you go to them, it's awkward and difficult and a strained conversation where you're hoping that they'll give a little and you'll give a little. A truly repentant person sees their sin and is saying, this is what I've done. No matter what you've done or what you might think you've done, this is what I've done. Please forgive me. I'm repenting. I'm, I'm owning it all. I see the log in my own eye and I'm not looking at the splinter. That's repentance. Remember the storyline of the church in Corinth where Paul had written the first letter, that's our first letter of 1 Corinthians, and undoubtedly wrote a middle letter that we do not have in our Bibles, but it was called the severe letter historically, and it was a strong letter that Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 was alluding to where he's saying, I was sad to have sent you that letter, but really I wasn't sad. He was sad because it hurt them because he was confronting them about their immorality. He was confronting them about their false teaching. He was confronting them, no doubt, about their false, their misrepresentation and false representation of Paul saying he wasn't a true apostle. And he was sad that he had to rebuke them, but he wasn't sad because through that rebuke, their sorrow was not worldly sorrow. It was a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Repentance. 
And he describes this in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered not loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's a lot at stake stake with the matter of repentance. If you're a hardened heart, you could be losing rewards in heaven. If you have a hardened, unrepentant heart where you are unwilling to forgive others, you're unwilling to make things right with people, you're holding on to your sins, then you might be proving that you don't have salvation waiting for you at all as an unbeliever. This is a repentance that proves out someone's salvation. It leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And this is internal death for the believer where you are hardened in your heart and grieving and you're not right with the Lord or you're dying and you're doomed and dead spiritually as an unbeliever who thinks you're a Christian, but when you're unwilling to repent, you're doomed and you're circling the drain headed to an eternal hell. Verse 11, for see, this is what repentance looks like. Here's the marks. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. How do you know when someone's repentant? They're on fire for righteousness. They want to vindicate what was wrong. They're not just sorry they got caught and sorry for what they did and sorry they hurt you. They're, they're putting that away, they're turning from it, and they're multiplying works of righteousness in joy out of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the zeal of wanting to vindicate what was wrong and make things right. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, your repentance should be as notorious as your sin. How much do you need to repent? Well, how bad was your sin? And then how glorious is it when you genuinely own your sin at the level that you did it and you make it right? This is a gift. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of every believer. Remember the difference between Judas Iscariot, Judas who denied the Lord and he wept. He threw the 30 pieces of silver back at the Sanhedrin. But in his weeping, he ultimately died a death of spiritual guilt because he wasn't truly repentant. He was sad, he was sorry for what he had done, but then he killed himself, went to hell. Peter, by contrast, denied the Lord three times, overtly, in the Lord's most time of need. When Jesus went to the cross, Peter was in total denial, total outward rejection of the Lord, actively refusing to be aligned with Christ, actively denying the Lord Jesus, but he repented and he was restored. And he ultimately became a great preacher. And he did that because he genuinely owned what he did. He was sorrowful for it. He cried over it, but he also owned it, turned from it, and then began to follow and take steps towards the Lord. It had... Peter stayed where he was spiritually, he would have felt like perhaps you feel hopeless today. Maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe you feel like things are not gonna get better for you in your life. Maybe you feel like over the last four months you've been sinking spiritually, running from the Lord spiritually, not turning to the Lord, not engaged with him, with the word, with his people, 
with worshiping, with singing, with joy, you're disconnected. What's the way back? Repentance. How do you get Jesus? You repent. What does Jesus give you? He gives you hope. Why would you repent? Well, look at the text again. Verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Well, we've been learning about the kingdom of heaven because it's a big theme throughout the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God represented through the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God represented through the presence of Christ when he walked the earth, the kingdom of God that comes in our hearts when we are saved, when we become kingdom citizens, the kingdom of God that will be established at the new heavens and the new earth with the millennial reign where Jesus will reign on earth and the kingdom of God is established literally here again. What is this speaking of? John is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Literally, Jesus is here. Heaven has arrived. Heaven is on earth. What does heaven promise for every believer? No more sadness, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more demons, no more dying. When Jesus came, he showed that he was Lord supernaturally over all creation. He walked on the water. He calmed the wind and the waves. He turned the water into wine. Why? To show that the effects of the fall The effects of of nature and dynamics here that kill people and hurt people, disease, viruses that hurt people, that he's the dominant Lord over all of those things. That's why he would cause creation to be quiet. That's why he could cast demons out of people because he's Lord over the demonic. There's no demons in heaven why he healed people. There's no suffering in heaven. That's why he raised people. There's no death in heaven. There's no sting of death in heaven. It was kingdom. The kingdom was on earth. You repent to get to Jesus and Jesus gives you hope. Remember, this is the time of grace where heaven had come down. How do you get to this kingdom? You repent, you turn, It's not by doing anything. It's by responding to what the Lord, please listen to what I'm saying. It's not by doing something. We're not talking about penance. We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about showing up. We're not talking about reading your Bible more. It's not what we're talking about. It's a response to what God is working already in your heart. If you sense the inner compulsion of the Holy Spirit to read a passage, to claim a promise, to deny a sin, to cut off a relationship, to turn away from the world, to be drawn to Christ. If God is working that in your heart, then respond in faith and say, Lord, I believe, I sense this. I'm turning to you. I'm giving you my life. I'm repenting, changing the way I think. My outlook is changing now. You are supreme. You are superior. You are glorious. This is the work of repentance in your heart. Well, we've looked at the messenger, looked at the message, let's look at the masses. Did people follow the Lord in repentance? Well, it says in verse five of chapter three, it says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Who were they going out to? Verse four, they were going out to John who wore a camel, a garment of camel's hair 
and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was nothing to really look at from the outside. I mean, he was sort of a spectacle. He was an oddity. He was comfortably a prophet. What were they going out to? They were going out to John because they were seeing a message of hope. They were bound up in their religion. They were isolated in darkness. They were ensnared in isolation. They were, they were bound up in false hope. They wanted to go out to someone who had rebelled against ceremonialism, someone who had rebelled against sacramentalism, someone who had rebelled against a deadening external religion. They were going out to someone who was in a survival mode, eating off of the land, someone who was who was crashing through Jewish traditionalism. Baptism um, was, a, was an act that was, that was unique to John. You had ceremonial washings that would take place in the temple, but there were no baptistries, not, not for converts. You would have Gentile uh, converts who would become, they would be proselytized into the Jewish faith and that they were baptized there, but... Baptism was, in essence, a new and unique thing for all these people to be coming out to. And who came out? All of Jerusalem. Look at the expansive language here. Jerusalem, all Judea, the greater region, not just the city folk, but the rural country folk came out as well. All the region about the Jordan were going out to him. People in droves coming out to be immersed, coming out to show by faith through a a full baptism, going under the water that they were truly converted from the inside out. They were owning their sins, dunking the whole self. We're going to go back to that next week. So we're going to contrast the true repentance and a true baptism versus what the Pharisees and Sadducees were wanting. But before we end our time in our text, look at verse six. This is the final point. We've seen the messenger, the message, the message, and now the mark Uh, The true mark of repentance, it's at the end of verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were in the river Jordan, uh, which was a rushing river, so they probably would be in a tributary area. And as they would walk into that area, where it was probably quiet enough for people to hear voices, they were outwardly confessing their sins. The word confession is homologeo. It means to say the same thing that God already knows is going on in your heart. Out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, you're, you're speaking what's really going on inside when you're confessing. God knows. God sees in your heart. He knows your life. So when you say the same thing that he already knows, you're basically just making it right with him. Just like a child who has sinned, the parent knows he or she has sinned, but things aren't right relationally. That child is still your child, but things aren't right until there is a confession. That speaks of the language of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're making things right with God. Well, these who were coming to John the Baptist were making things right for the first time. This was a baptism of repentance for salvation and for life in the first place. 
There's a lot of passages that speak of the heart condition that is solved through confession. Matthew 12, 34, the brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Here in verse six, it's a middle use of homilageo, which speaks of people really wrestling with what's going on inside of them. They were confessing these things. Listen, here's the key. I'm gonna just go home with this idea. If you cover your sins with religion, if you cover your hidden sins with this external smile on your face, but you're nursing something inside, you are not free. And ultimately, even at the day of judgment, God will uncover what you've covered. But the reverse is true. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. If you cover, God will uncover. If you uncover, guess what God will do? He'll cover it with grace. It's what he did for David. Psalm 32, five, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We need rescue. We need hope. How do you get hope? You have to repent. If you repent, what do you get? You get Jesus. What do you have? When you have Jesus, you have hope. Do you need hope? Repent. Embrace Jesus.